all you fish enthusiasts out there. Whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of the Week, your audio almanac of all the fish. It's Monday, August 1st, 2022. This year, we're excited to take you on a week-by-week tour of fish across the country with guests from all walks of life. I'm Katrina Liebick with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska. I'm Guy Iro, and this week we are finally covering the United States' only native cichlid, the Texas cichlid. We are very pleased to welcome fishing guide and fellow fisherman Chris Johnson from Living Waters Fly Fishing in Texas, which, by the way, we know is the second largest state behind Alaska. I just wanted to throw that out there since you're our first Texas guest. That's awesome. I have no problem with that. (laughs) So I understand you've been fly fishing Texas for a long time. So I think what we'll plan to do is do our usual deep dive into this fish, its biology, a little bit of ecology. It's a really important part of fishing. And then we'll get into some of the specifics about fishing it. Oh, I didn't. I, I thought we were going to be all ecology today. So that's good. I'm, I'm, I'm excited. I get, oh. I get to talk about fishing, too. This is awesome. This, this, oh, absolutely. This all the time. Yeah. <laughs> so first things first, cichlids in general are quite showy. I think they're super cool. I did not know we had one in North America until Guy and I were kind of making our list this last year for this coming season. So if you could just kind of take us through what this fish looks like, if you had one in hand, just so our listeners have an idea of what we're, we're talking about today. Well, that's awesome. I, I would love to do that. The Rio Grande cichlid is really, really a spectacular fish, and it's often called Texas cichlids. So either either way, they're interchangeable. But as far as uh, what we call them around here, we call them Rios for short. As far as the way they look, it's really a fantastic fish because first of all, they're going to resemble you know in in size more of like an average panfish, like a bluegill or something of that sort. However, they're in a completely different family, as you well know. I think the thing that's totally different, I was commenting uh, with an individual the other day, we were out fishing and I mentioned, I was like, you know, it's really the only fish we have this far South that I can think of off the top of my head that has polka dots all over it. You know, you go to, you know, Western trout and salmon and stuff like that. You'll get the, you know, dark spots on a, on a light background or your light spots on a dark background. The Rio is the only fish down here that really has that. And the difference is the spots are turquoise. It's incredible. They can range from kind of a white spotted to even more of a uh, turquoise spotted fish. And they're really, really an incredible fish to catch. Sometimes their eyes are purple. They have these little bitty teeth that are orange tipped and they're meaner now get out. They are just a, I always tell people, I'm like, if they regularly got to five pounds, I don't think I'd ever wade in a Texas river again. (laughs) It was, they're just the meanest thing in fins down here. They're fantastic, but they are quite beautiful. I was really noticing their forehead. It looks like a five head. It's just at least some of the individuals have like a huge hump on their head. That's right. That's a sign of spawning dominance in the males. It's called a nuchal hump. That's basically just kind of this weird fatty lobe up there that uh, it's got this giant knot on its head. And uh, the males, that becomes especially pronounced uh, in the spring when they're spawning. And it stays throughout spawning season. Then it'll recede a little bit during the winter, but not by much. The dominant males still just, they're crazy. They almost get like box shaped when they get really, really large. It's a really spectacular fish. Here's you a, uh, there you go. Oh my God. He's showing a picture of a Ah. fish with a big old five head. What is, so it's just meaty. It's like a beluga whale. It's, it's almost like a humphead wrasse in miniature. It is. Yeah. It, it, yeah. Kind of like a humphead wrasse or Napoleon wrasse, something like that. Yeah. It looks a lot like that. I got to go catch one now. Awesome. Cool. Now, I take it that you've probably been fishing around central Texas for a long time, probably your whole life. Uh, is this a fish that you grew up with and ha- are really familiar? Or did you run into it sometime and kind of have a shock moment like, ah, oh, what is this? And then go and learn about it. 
I've been around this fish my whole life. Even before I started fly fishing, I was still fishing for these. And, you know, growing up, they were always called Rio Grande perch. That's what my grandpa called them. So I, I knew them as that. And then when I learned more about cichlids later in life, these things were very different and diametrically different than all the other quote unquote perch, which were actually sunfish that we were catching. Every, everything in Texas is a perch. We've got sun perch. Mm-hmm. We got bluegill perch. We got all kinds of perch. And there isn't a, <laughs> not a, not a, I'll tell you what, man, fish taxonomy in Texas is one of the most broken things. The only thing that we do worse is maybe pronounce Spanish words. So that's the, <laughs> it's terrible. By the way, a lot of folks have been exposed to this fish through the aquarium trade. They're called the Texas cichlid. And I mean, if you go buy one down the street, they're expensive. I mean, it's not a cheap fish. This was in my younger, before I knew better years. I kept one of these, a wild one in a fish tank. Don't ever do that. They're terrible pets. They will spit rocks at the glass all night long. They, they like, if you want to be a professional insomniac, that is it right there. You just keep one of the wild ones. The ones that are raised, I've kept them from the pet store as well. And those are much nicer. They, they, they are used to their environment. It's, and they're not, yeah, they're kind of jerks. If you try to keep a wild one, <laughs> he's like, get me out of here. And, and he did, he got his wish. <laughs> I remember the first time I saw one, we didn't have these up in Utah where I grew up, but I was down in Dripping Springs on the ranch where Willie Nelson, he had his first 4th of July picnic there. And I was swimming in that big sunken grotto they got there. And I remember seeing these fish with that big, tall forehead, like you were saying, and they, they kind of resembled sunfish, but they obviously weren't. And so when I got back, I went on the internet, I was figuring out what they were. And it was a long time before I got back and actually started to try to catch one. But I fished all day because that's where my uncle told me to go and I couldn't find one. And finally, I gave up. I went to Waller Creek down in the middle of downtown Austin, Texas. I was like, <laughs> you know what? I'm going to go look for some introduced platy fish. I'm, I'm giving up on the cichlids. Oh, cool. And right when you give up, that's when they start to hit. And I pulled out that first big one that I showed they're, you guys there. They're in there. They're in there. Yeah, it's it's funny because, you know, the, and we'll get more into kind of the history of the fish and the biology of it in a bit. But, you know, they have been introduced all throughout the hill country. And uh, that's one of the things that is kind of nice is they adapt pretty well to urban fisheries. So, I mean, Waller Creek right there in Austin, there's a number of others there in downtown Austin that have them. Chris, what can you tell us about cichlids in general? And I know my exposure of cichlids has been mostly through aquariums growing up. I know reading about like Africa and the Rift Lakes and just all the crazy diversity of beautiful cichlids they have out there. I know there's Jack Dempsey fish. I had one of those when I was growing up in a tank. I think they're native from like Mexico down to Honduras or something. And again, that's a, a really mean fish as well. I couldn't have any other fish in the tank with that. But what can you tell us about cichlids in general and how this fish fits into that family of fish? You know, as far as what makes a Rio Grande cichlid a Rio Grande cichlid, from a taxonomic you know perspective, they're obviously a lot closer to like a peacock bass or a tilapia than they are to anything that we have here in the U.S. When you look at their behavior, for one, I think is the most staggering, and even their spawning habits and stuff. I mean, that's the the thing that's so different is you know sunfish and bass they'll make a nest, and you'll see like one of the fish you know they pair up to spawn, then basically one of them gets run off, and one of them guards the fish. With Rio Grande cichlids, they actually raise their young as pairs. So you've got a mom and a dad, and they are defending about 1,500 to 2,000 fry somewhere in there, maybe maybe more on a good brood, but still it's going to be anywhere from 1,500 to 3,000 is their typical brood. 
And the way that they protect their young, it's very interesting because the female and male actually rotate duties. One will actually stay in the brood of fish and the other one kind of defends the outskirts, if you will, kind of the flank moves. And then when they when they, I don't know if they, they get tired or they say tag you're it. I don't know what they do in cichlid language down there, but basically they rotate duties and the male will switch with the female and so forth. They're incredible parents and they fight, I guess you can say fin and tooth instead of tooth and nail. And they lose a lot of those due to predation, but they'll fight to the death for those little babies. And I mean, I got to watch that just a couple of days ago over the weekend. And I mean, watching them defend their young, I mean, it's, it's admirable. I and mean, these little fish, they can take a five pound bass and send it running. And their dietary habits are quite a bit different. They're not a, I, I would say they're omnivorous is a, is a easy out, but there's populations of this fish, like in the upper San Marcos near the spring that are, according to dietary studies, are almost completely herbivorous, which is really interesting yeah. that they're not competing for bait fish and things like that. I find that most of their diet, as far as anecdotally speaking, is really made up of, you know, small invertebrates and things like that. You'll see them chase a bait fish from time to time, but I would say that is so infrequent and few and far between. I think it's probably they just eat the stupid ones. <laughs> I don't think they really have the stamina to go chase a shiner. Shiner will put the hurt on them. They're fast. Yeah, they got a pretty small mouth. So that's something we can think about when we're learning how to fish for something is looking at that mouth and kind of figuring out what, yeah, what they're eating and then how to, how to target them. A question I have is what kind of waters are they in? Like what kind of habitat are they occupying? And then we can kind of talk about fishing then and targeting them. I'd say habitat kind of ranges pretty widely. If you look at the native rivers of like the Rio Grande, the Pecos, the Devils, you know, those rivers are very rocky bottom. They are going to have some aquatic vegetation uh, in certain parts of them where these fish I do think that they love aquatic vegetation. And one of the things I've found about the fish is they do love vertical structure. Having that vertical structure and undercut banks is very important for overwinter survival. If you look at just their temperature thresholds as a species, they typically don't survive in water above 49 degrees Fahrenheit. In, you know, temperature testing in labs and, you know, different, you know, hatcheries and stuff like that, they can bring the water temp down to 42 degrees. I think it was 42, I think is the lowest they did in a controlled environment. And then they bring it back up from there. And as long as they're able to bring that water temperature back up, the cichlids did survive. But 42 degrees for an extended period would probably be mortality on most of them. It's interesting because Brushy Creek, which I'm next to here at the fly shop, not this February, but I guess a year ago, February, we had a massive, you know, just unprecedented freeze. I don't think we'd had a freeze of that caliber since I think the mid or early eighties. And I mean, we got down and the wind chills were in the negatives here and uh, brushy Creek, it actually froze over in many oh, portions wow. and the water temperature. When I took it before snow melt was at 40 and we did lose a lot of our cichlids. But if I were to go out there right now, I mean, there's sections of the Creek that are covered in them. And there's even some sections that froze over that still have, you know, trophy class cichlids. I saw several that were pushing 10, 11 inches over the weekend that, I mean, the state record's 11.1 inches. So, I mean, they don't get a whole lot bigger than what I was finding them over the weekend. And the thing that's really encouraging about that is those fish were using groundwater is really my hypothesis on this, because I've, as I've watched them behaviorally speaking, I think that that's where that vertical structure and those undercut banks really come into play. You know, you're not going to get a thermocline in five feet of water is your deepest point in most of our, you know, central Texas creeks and rivers that they occupy. But that groundwater coming in from the bottom of the aquifers, you know, it, it might touch, you know, high to mid 50s in the winter. They can easily survive that. And so it's interesting to watch from a fishing standpoint. They are their worst enemies 
in the spring and summer. They don't want anything to do with one another other than, you know, <laughs> the, the pair that's guarding their young. You know, a pair over here and a pair over here, they'll travel eight to 12 feet to go find each other. And I'm just like, really? Are y'all just that bored? Couldn't you just, anyway, I mean, it's, it's funny to watch them do what they do. And then all of a sudden they go from hating each other's guts to schooling up before the winter hits in really just incredible numbers. Huh. And, and, and sometimes that's, you know, if it's a, a small population, you might see schools of six to 10 fish. If it's a large population, you'll see groups of 60, 80, 100 fish sometimes if it's a large population and they just seemingly vanish in the winter. They're just gone. Like you can go walk up and down any Texas Creek and good luck finding one. If it's not a spring fed Creek that has a constant temperature up near the headwaters, good luck finding one. I think this brings up a really good point in terms of habitat connectivity. So, I mean, fish do move and this isn't necessarily like a migratory species like we think of like a salmon or something like that, but that seasonality of movement and just keeping those systems open, both longitudinally up and down like a river system and also with those banks. I mean, that's really important to consider with all fish. So I think that's a really good point that you make as a fisherman to kind of make those observations of how these fish are moving and why that's important to them. Absolutely. And, and it's one of the things that we face here in Central Texas is just, it's one of the fastest, if not the fastest growing metro area, I think in the US, if I'm correct, I think we're one of the fastest growing areas. And, you know, when you look at that, you know, urbanization is a major threat to the species, because I mean, we do have some green spaces, we still have parks, but obviously, as you pour more concrete, and you want to build right up to the creek, and, you know, guys are running sewage lines under the creek to, you know, basically get another development online, you know, you could be destroying some of those undercut banks and some of those overwintering areas. And some of these populations, while they're not migratory within the fishery per se, they do depend on the existing habitat to, you know, exist essentially. Yeah. And so if we degrade habitat in the, in the name of progress, we'll lose the species, at least in the vibrant numbers that we have now. And there are some good techniques to not do that. I mean, we've got the fish-friendly culverts that are like spanning beyond the channels at roads and things like that. So there's a lot of ways to coexist with cool fish like this. So yeah, that's cool. There are. And I think it's a very, very good point. Fish passage is going to be very important. I feel like the culverts and, you know, even, you know, fish barriers and stuff like that to protect from non-native invasive fish and not, you know, stopping water, you know, actually still having flow that reaches these main stems, very, very important. And it's something that I think gets overlooked a lot in our conservation talks, especially in the South, is we just don't have that, that thought. I mean, Brushy Creek, we have American eels that spawn in that thing. And that's a fish that spawns, I think, darn near 3,000 miles away. And I've got them, you know, they've been documented right across the street from me. And I mean, that's, it's incredible to see, incredible to see that where we've got fish that are that special and that diverse that occupy the same water as the cichlid, but we still need to make allowances for the entire ecosystem. This is a fish that ever since we expanded out beyond Alaska, <laughs> I've wanted to do. And I've had my friends and family down in Texas. They've been like, hey, you, you got to do the cichlid at some point. You got to do cichlid with my So I mean, Katrina's here like, hey, we got to do the cichlid. We got to do cichlid. Can I reach out to someone? And so I reached out to a buddy of mine from Texas that I used to work with. And he gave me your name. And when we were on the phone talking about maybe you coming on to do this, you mentioned that you had met this guy at an AFS conference. And that really kind of surprised me because in all my AFS conferences, whether they be at the national level or at the state level, I'm not used to seeing people who specialize in just angling and guiding showing up. They're more scientific. So I'm curious, why 
you feel it's important to go and show up and talk to the people at these meetings. And just one quick point, AFS is American Fisheries Society, so it's a professional <laughs> fish group for folks that don't know. Uh, thank, thanks, Katrina. Yeah, I, I mean, and that's a fair question. I mean, and it's one that I do get fairly often, but you know, I feel like as you become a fly angler, you have a pretty decent smattering of naturalist worked into your DNA at that point. So you're going to learn about your bugs, you're going to learn about your fish, and I would say I'm I'm a bit of a nerd myself. So for me, I think that going and learning about the fish is really what made it so special. I don't like to do anything halfway if I can help it. And so for me, it's all about learning about the species, learning about their habits, learning about the threats, learning how we can help. So when it comes to Guadalupe bass, I don't want to just be like, oh yeah, you know, it's our state fish. I want to know more than that. I want to know about, you know, genetic purity. I want to learn, I want to know where they, you know, are doing very well. Where is their non-native integration that is natural? Where is it unnatural? You know, and there's both in, in the hill country where smallmouth were stocked on top of them. There's some that's natural where spotted bass have just migrated upstream. I love that stuff. I think that that, that just floats my boat. I, I love any sort of biological makeup of a fish. I love, you know, just learning about them anecdotally from being out there, seeing them. But the true matter is this, and I find that the more I learn about something, the more I appreciate it. The more I appreciate it, the more I want to actually protect it. And so for me, that's really one of our major things here at the fly shop. There are three real pillars of Living Waters fly fishing, and that is community, education, and conservation. And so we wanted to build a community of fly anglers that really cared about their, their backyard. I mean, and that that that's any species, whether it be Rio Grande cichlids, whether it be sunfish, you know, bass species, whatever. And so to do that, you educate. And so you talk about the importance of the species. You talk about how to chase them. You, you go catch your first one. And you're like, oh my gosh, this is so cool. I want to catch another one. And then the conservation is the natural outflow of education for me. And so to be involved with, you know, AFS, I mean, we do stuff as a shop. I do stuff individually. Um, I'm the, uh, the state council chair for our Trout Unlimited chapter here in Texas. We have the largest one in the world at almost 6,000 members down here in Texas, which is weird. Don't ask me how that worked out. Um, but nonetheless, you know, it's, it's incredible to be involved with so many great groups of people. And I am, I am at my absolute happiest in a room full of fish nerds. I, I am just, I absolutely love that. And you're not going to scare me off by, you know, throwing words around you know, <laughs> a, a confidence interval is not going to, that's not going to scare me. You know, and I think this the thing that I, I really like about it most is coming at it from an angling perspective, you you interpret the data just a little bit differently because you see the role it's going to play on the general public. I think a lot of scientists have a really hard time relaying their findings and conveying that information to the angling public. And so that's where the conservation role for the store really comes in is I really wanted to be involved on a scientific level. And, and if it is something I'm seeing anecdotally, I like talking to Texas Parks and Wildlife and say, have y'all ever documented this? Have you ever seen any behavior like this? Do y'all have anything written anywhere that expresses this? And in some cases in cichlids, they don't. Anecdotally, we're finding stuff that has never been recorded. I mean, just after the freeze, that water temp was 40 degrees before snowmelt, and we still had cichlids now. That's a threshold that's never been documented before. Now, does that mean that these fish are adapting as we push their range further north through introduction? Who knows? There's not, there's not been a study done on that. And those are things that being in a room full of grad students, <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> that means, hey, y'all want a that's project? Awesome. I got a couple for you. That's cool. <laughs> 
So I'm curious. You're out there. You're sort of on the Edwards Plateau in the hill country. People come out there. They're probably looking for something more kind of like your largemouth bass, or if they're into sort of endemic fishes, maybe your Guadalupe bass. Do you have people walk into your shop who are looking to go after these Rio Grande cichlids, or do you have people who come in saying, "Hey, I see you have a guide service," and then you have to sell them to go out and look for these fish? We actually have more people now interested in this fish than I think I've ever seen in my entire life. And and part of that, I mean, I'm not going to say it's solely due to this, but I mean, we do make a big deal about it. So from the guide service, we do promote the fish and say, hey, if you'd like to go catch a Texas native, we've got those right across the street and we'd love to do that. But the other beautiful part about Brushy Creek is we have our state fish, which is the Guadalupe bass, and we have a genetically pure population of those in Brushy Creek right across the street as well. So you can go do the the big Texas Mm two-step, if you will, your Rio Grande cichlid and your Guadalupe bass. You can do those right across the street from the fly shop. So we don't really have to sell it. People come in, they're like, I want to do this. And we're like, great. We, we've got some water that's literally tailored for that. You know, we don't really have, it's not a hard sell. People are like, man, we want to do this. I'm like, great. We'd love to take you. <laughs> I was telling my husband about this last night that we're talking about this fish. And he was like, what? Like he had never seen the stickler before. didn't know about it. But if say I was going to come down from Alaska to Texas, what would a day of fishing look like with this fish? What would we be using? What kind of lures? What kind of gear? What kind of like, yeah, just everything. Well, first off, I'd say time of year is going to play a really big, really big role. I mean, the months of May and I would say October, if I had two months out of the year that you're like, I want to catch a Rio Grande Cichlid, when's the best time to do it? May is awesome because our cold fronts are done, fish activity is predictable. And then October, they're going to start storing up for winter. Uh, As far as what to fish for them, uh, smaller flies. I tell people don't fish larger than a size 12. Uh, We're fishing really small stuff. And that's mainly just so they can fit it in their mouths. I mean, my, the biggest cichlids I've ever landed were probably on a size 14. And I mean, and it's it, a lot of people are like, that's really small. But when you see this fish and see how readily they'll take a fly that small, and I mean, they just, they love it. And the fact of the matter is they don't eat a fly the same way a bass or sunfish does. They actually, instead of, a, so bass and sunfish do what's called cavitation, where they flare their gills, they inhale water through that, through that process, and they inhale a fly. Well, cichlids don't do that. I mean, they can do that to a degree, but let's look at the fact that they got tiny little mouths. And if you've ever kept cichlids in a uh, aquarium or anything like that, they're very, very, I guess, kind of nitpicky as far as a fish goes. They'll move rocks around. They'll, when they dig a nest, they don't fan the nest area clean like a bass would. They actually physically remove the rocks with their mouth. They will actually grasp a fly. And if you use a larger fly, say a woolly bugger in like a size 10, If they don't want it where they're at, they'll go pick up that fly by the marabou tail, move it away from their nest and drop it. And they will never get a hook in their mouth. And you will sit there and you will want to like, you know, beat your head into something solid. You are so irate that you can't hook a fish. And it's, it's funny to watch. They're really methodical about it. And, And I get a kick out of it. I think it's the greatest thing ever to watch them come over to the fly, inspect it, check it out. And they're picky. Sometimes they're just like, eh, I don't feel like eating that. They swim off and you're like, you jerk. And so you're sitting there, you know, rifling through a fly box. I mean, I've easily, if it's a fish I really want to catch, I've spent as long as 45 minutes on one fish. My basic rule of thumb is this, whoever gets angry first loses. And cichlids, a lot of times they're not eating out of hunger. They're they're, they're just irritated with it and they want to eat it. And so it, 
if I get irritated first, I'll walk off storm off and not have the right fly or whatever else. If he gets irritated first, he's going to eat the fly and I'm going to be all right. So that's the, that's the idea. He who gets angry first loses. <laughs> that's not awesome. Well, what are you, are you using like a three weight or something to cast for these? What, what are you trying to catch them on? That's the most fun. So two and three weights are absolute blast. And I, I think the, the, the fish really doesn't necessitate anything larger than a four weight. Now there is something out there. And I know that it, depending on your fly fishing circle, it can be somewhat polarizing, but I'm going to tell you what the absolute most deadly way to fish for this mm. fish is. And that is honestly Tinkara. Uh, Tinkara fly fishing, which is that fixed line method. The reason why it works so well is they like a lot of movement in the fly but they don't like a lot of linear movement. They want the fly to like shake, rattle and roll, but they don't want it to like swim away from them. Basically, if you can like almost vibrate a fly, yeah, think about that. Like a lot of times we're sight fishing for this fish where we're laying a fly in front of them. They come over and inspect the fly. And if you can just like quiver the rod tip and that fly just almost jitters around on the bottom, you're going to catch that fish. Yeah. Most people fish for this fish way too fast where they're retrieving a fly linearly like they would a bass or sunfish and actually stripping a fly in like a streamer. And that's just, you'll catch a couple, but if you want to go have like a banner day, it's all about putting the fly where they are and trying to keep it there as long as possible without, you know, while still keeping it moving. Tying flies out of natural materials like marabou or fox fur. I mean, I have one that's called the Rio Bandito, and the name it came by its name honestly. It's just, man, that fly gets munched, and it's tied out of Australian possum, and it just breathes oh under the water. Looks like a little juvenile crayfish, and they just, they just munch the fire out of it. It's an incredible fly. <laughs> so, say I catch one of these on that fly. I've got it in hand, so I got to make a decision: Am I going to release this fish? Am I going to keep it? I guess, do you have any handling tips if I'm going to release it? And then if I'm going to keep it and eat it, I'd like to talk a little bit about, you know, are these, you know, good table fare and what are they like? Okay. I mean, that's a fair question. And, and it, you know, for our guide service, everything we do is catch and release. So for us, you know, we're, we're fishing urban fisheries and a lot of them, you know, even the more remote ones, the way that I kind of like to put it, you know, uh, if you were going to keep a, a keeper size largemouth in Texas, it's going to be 14 inches. Well, a lot of our creeks, you know, that's a pretty large fish in small water. So you're removing dominant genes from that gene pool of, you know, your larger spawning fish. I just, I just assume keep those there. Now, cichlids, there's places where there's an absolute ton of them. And I've heard of people eating them. I mean, they're a cichlid. They're a cousin to a tilapia. I don't think it's out of the question. Are there better fish to eat out there? Yes, there are. <laughs> but to be honest, they don't get real big. A trophy fish is 11 inches. Yeah. I mean, really, a trophy fish is 10 inches. If you catch one that's over 10 inches, you're, you're in the upper echelon. And I mean, that's about the size of something you'd want to keep anyway. So I'd say they're somewhat size restricted on what you'd want to actually harvest. But for me, I'm going to let them go. I'm going to take really good care of them, keep them in the water as much as I can. And personally, I just think they're so darn pretty. Yeah. I mean, like I just, I have a hard time keeping one. I'm just like, oh man, I'm just like, I love them so much. It's just one of those things that for me, I just let it go make more cichlids. I, I want more of them in my rivers. And so I'm totally down with that. In your previous response, I enjoyed you talking about the goals of your fly shop and trying to get out and educate and excite people about fish and these fish in your own backyard. And I think those are very laudable goals. I'm curious, you've been at this for, you say, six or seven years with this species in particular. Have you seen any notable changes in public perception of this fish in your community? Absolutely. 100%. I would say within the fly fishing community, regard for the species as a whole, 
than maybe we ever have in the state. And I think people have begun to see that this is a really awesome fish. They're posting it on social media. They're tagging people and everybody's excited and everybody wants to go catch one. And I think the fish is really, as far as an awareness standpoint, it's probably in better shape than it's ever been as a species. That's awesome. So thanks again, Chris. Uh, Yeah, we enjoyed talking to you and we hope everyone gets out there and enjoys all the fish. Thanks for listening to Fish of the Week. My name is Katrina Liebick and my co-host is Guy Iro. Our production partner for the series is Citizen Racecar. Produced and story edited by David Hoffman. Production management by Gabriella Montaquin. Post-production by Alex Brower. Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Region Office of External Affairs. We honor, thank, and celebrate the whole community, individual tribes, states, our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, scientists, and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the fish. Fish.